you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department. Just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we're back on Risk Management Monthly. And Rick, I don't know how you and I lucked out like this, but we have Mark Calvert from from Houston, Texas with us again. He was not discouraged the last time we gave him a hard time. So Mark, Rick and I aren't worthy to have a guy of your stature here on the show. And many thanks for joining us. The pleasure is all mine. Yeah, yep. I, actually, I wanted to mention that, you know, we've had maybe over the, I don't know, six, seven or eight years we've been doing this, maybe only uh, probably four attorneys on. And one of them was a plaintiff attorney. Boy, do we take heat for that. But the other, <laughs> was, was, <laughs> but the others have been on the doctor side of the equation. And Mark, I got to tell you that uh, you have received the highest ratings of a- any of them. And we're really appreciative that you're, you actually made it clear that you'd like to do this. We didn't have to twist your arm. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. This is good. So, folks, well, I appreciate a- that. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's August 2015, Risk Management Monthly. And this month, we're going to start talking since we have a lawyer on the call. We want to talk about some recent decisions by various courts. I think, you know, as a country boy doctor, my view of the courts is that's a place where guys wear black robes and they slam things down. But I've been told courts only do two things. They settle disputes, and you notice I didn't say fairly, and they set policy. So today we're going to talk about a couple of cases where policy has been set. Mark, before we get going, anything else you want to throw in or say about courts that that we can put on the air that's not a problem here? <laughs> Well, I'd just like to say at the outset that I do enjoy doing this because really my motivation is twofold. One is to allow practitioners to practice better medicine uh, by giving some insights into some of the shark-infested waters out there. And, And then secondly, prepare and protect them for when the inevitable lawsuit and complaint comes. I would say that the courtroom is as foreign to most doctors as the hospital is to most patients. It's a scary arena. It's an arena that's not a respecter of persons, and it's one to best avoid if you can. And if you have to go in there, you'd better be well armed. Yes, and suspend all ideas you have about reality and fairness when you walk in the door. The first case we're going to talk about, and Rick, you're well aware of this, we do an an inordinate number of Illinois cases. First case. Homestar Bank and Financial Services versus Emergency Care and Health Organization Limited. Now, don't get discouraged by the name here. No bank is involved. They're a financial intermediary. But the story here is very clear, and this went all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court. And it has to do with the question of an emergency doctor raised the issue that he ran from the emergency department to the unit or someplace upstairs to be involved in the medical care of a sick patient. 
And for those of you who only work in big hospitals where this never happens, believe me, there's plenty of places where this sort of thing happens in America today. He claimed that, and the appeals court agreed with him, that, well, he didn't get paid for this, and just because he's in the hospital, he shouldn't be blamed and held responsible. He thought what he was doing was a good Samaritan act. Before we get going, we've talked about Good Samaritan multiple times, and we said you needed three things. One, you weren't remunerated. Number two, it wasn't an expected part of your job duty. And number three, there was no previous sort of doctor-patient relationship had been set up. Mark, anything you'd like to comment about this before we give the, the findings of the court? <laughs> well, I think you've summarized it well from the legal elements. I will say as an aside, I think that lawyers use it when they know that they've they've got some issues with the care that was provided. And so I've thrown it out there a few times. Whether or not it truly applied, probably open to discussion. But yeah. I think you've summarized it well. You know, one of the points that also comes up is this idea of being grossly negligent the idea of a bystander who wants to help, who has no obligation to help, who then yanks a person out of a car through the window and breaks their neck, that that Good Samaritan doesn't absolve you, I believe, from some grossly negligent behavior. That's a very good point, Rick. And the appellate strategist, which publication, makes that point and reiterates that is this doesn't protect you if they have a sore thumb and you decide to cut their head off. It doesn't protect you from that. But in any event, emergency doctors have gone back and forth on this, and I've heard the strangest thing said, but the Illinois Supreme Court pretty much came down and put one more nail in this coffin. And basically, in this case, they said, nope, it was an expected part of your duty. It was part of your job, and it was so stated in the contract and whenever it's in contract law that says this, you will respond at this point in time and you guys have signed it, pretty much that's a part of your job. And so hiding behind the shield that you weren't paid for that specific patient doesn't hide the fact that the reason you have the contract and are able to work seeing paying patients is that you agreed to provide this service. And the Illinois Supreme Court wasn't buying any of this. So if you're an emergency doc and you've agreed to attend in the house, you run up there, just understand you're going to bear some liability. Comments? Greg, what about this idea that a doctor cannot be in two places at one time? That you are also have an obligation to the patients in the emergency department. Right. And what if you have somebody in the emergency department who's critical and you really just cannot leave? So that you need some wiggle room in your contract to, uh, to deal with this. Well, but that's the way the contract is written. And when I've looked at contracts in the past, I've said the emergency physician will respond if the situation in the department allows him to do so. You've got to remember a lot of this responding, the nurses can do. I mean, if it's a CPR that needs starting... If they need to call in another doctor, things like that, you don't necessarily have to do it. Another place I worked, which was a single floor, small hospital, 
they would actually roll sick patients they had a real question on down to the emergency department. That way you didn't have to leave and you had your equipment and your experienced staff around you to deal with those patients. Now, I never had a I never had a, a malpractice suit in that environment, so I don't know how it would hold up, but it seems reasonable to me. I mean, Mark, have you dealt with any of these? Oh, yeah. And, and I think the overarching principle, as we've stated before, is to act reasonably. We're near the Gulf Coast. We're near Galveston. And when you walk along the beach, you may step on a tar baby, the little oil beads that come up on it. And once it's on you, you've touched it. Once you touch a patient in a good Samaritan setting, you own it and you've got to act reasonably. Sometimes those cases are easier to defend based on the Sophie's choice that Rick talked about. That is, I've got just as an emergent patient in the emergency room that I have to deal with. Why venture out and go to the Good Samaritan situation? It's going to probably be easier to say, I really couldn't be in two places at once. I let the hospital people know that. I got somebody up there, a nurse or somebody to help, but I was dealing with my own emergency. I can deal with that easier than they go to the patient and as a Good Samaritan, they mess up. And then we try to rely on, well, it was poor care, but I should be exempted because I'm a good Samaritan. That's a tougher case to defend than I had to make a tough choice and I stayed in the emergency room to deal with the patient. So It seems like you're not a good Samaritan if uh, contractually you have an obligation to render care in these emergency situations. And I think that that's kind of the problem we get it because the hospitals want us to cover especially in the smaller hospitals i mean this is not happening in some university hospitals but in the smaller hospitals and i we had the same situation we had to go up and frankly i'm kind of surprised that there are many cases in this regard but you could certainly see where it could be an issue yep somebody's going to get the short end of this yeah, and there's all kinds of pickles to, to get into. But I, again, I think be reasonable in the judgment, make your notes reasonable, try to respond in an appropriate way, get another provider up there, communicate to the hospital, note that you communicated to the hospital. This all allows me to defend you better down the road because it shows that you were, you were wrestling with a couple of tough situations. Got you. Let's, let's reinforce a couple of ideas. Number one, we've talked about this before. If you've decided to be the summer camp doctor and, you know, you could take your kids and you had a cabin, you've received remuneration. You've decided that you're going to do this. It's elective. There's no surprises. I had that case where one of my docs thought he ought to, his malpractice ought to be covered by the group for this. I, you know, any doc who's doing anything knowingly in the community, whether you're the football doctor, whether you're the this, the that, I'd look into the question of whether your insurance policy covers what you're doing. Because in this case, it did not. He was covered for those cases seen in our hospitals on which we had a billing number and a chart number and nothing else. It was a it was a mistake in judgment. And, you know, Good Samaritan, you think it's going to extend to these things. It does not. 
Let me jump in on that real quick, Greg, because you make an excellent point. Yeah, so I I think that you guys are on the cutting edge of this thing. and, And one of the things that healthcare providers need to understand is that I think that the pendulum in the judiciary has started to swing more left than it ever has. And it's not dramatic, and it it depends a bit if you're in a red state or blue state. But if you look at the Supreme Court of of the nation, how they've been able to slalom through legal issues and carve out different things that they wanted to have happen. And and they do that in state Supreme Courts as well. This is an example with the Illinois Supreme Court. They wanted to reward this plaintiff. They were able to kind of dodge the Good Samaritan exemption. And so as healthcare providers, you need to be on guard <laughs> that that is going to be more of a reality, I think, as we proceed. And you may not want to rely on those defenses quite as aggressively as maybe we did 10 years ago. The other thing on the policy, and I think Greg makes a very good point, is you want to make sure that you're covered and the policies are usually generally written, but you can read through it and see what kind of uh, care is covered. But by the same token, I've seen many, many plaintiffs' attorneys over the years not want to pursue a doctor who doesn't have insurance. Now, that's not to advocate not having insurance, because I'm representing a couple right now that don't have insurance, and the plaintiffs' attorneys are going after them hammer and tong. But what I'm saying is if it turns out that you're not covered for that Good Samaritan effort, sometimes a plaintiff's attorney wants you to have insurance more than you do because it's easier for them to settle, if you will, than to try to shake down money from a a young emergency medicine doctor. So it's called it's called the easy money. I mean, you don't you don't want to have to go after somebody's EF Hutton account. You want the easy money which comes out of insurance companies. Okay, let's go on to another Supreme Court decision, which has huge ramifications. Wait a minute. I'm just just curious as heck about why physicians in this day and age where there's been a massive drop in the cost of insurance have ultimately decided to go bare. I understood that when they were, you know, the insurance was very high, but now it's most reasonable. And I'm curious as to what would have a person take that kind of risk on the assumption that they were going to be safe without having insurance. Mark? Yeah, the two I have right now are physicians that retired and decided that the tail coverage oh. was too high. And so <laughs> just to just to educate the listeners, you know, tail coverage is to pay for coverage that w- will cover matters that come up after you have retired. So if you treated a patient in 2014 and the statute of limitations doesn't run until 2016 and you retire in 2015, you're going to want some coverage, not just to protect you by having a bucket of money to settle with, but to pay those defense fees. I don't think that healthcare providers fully understand how costly it is to defend a case, whether it's getting good experts like Dr. Henry or whether it's paying for good lawyers like me, uh, those those fees add up. I mean, there's hearings, there's depositions, there's records to order. It's not uncommon to pay six figures to defend a case. And when a doctor says, you know what, I'm going to roll the dice. I don't think there's any pending claims. No one's really dissatisfied with me and they decide not to pay for the tail. They are really playing Russian roulette. And I've got two doctors right now where they've come to me and said, I'm sued and I don't have insurance, and I need to have you help me, and I try to give them a discount, but it adds up. We feel terrible about it. The plaintiff's attorney won't let them off the hook. It's a teetotal mess. It would have been much wiser for them to purchase the tail coverage. I actually had a doctor who was in that state, and it was after he had received the summons and complaint that he did some manipulation of his personal monies. 
And that, of course, was considered to be a felony. And, <laughs> and no, the court looked at that as his attempt to hide assets. And, uh, well, what they called it was an illegal conveyance of his assets. And, you know, dumping it off to children, grandchildren, friends, brothers, all this other kind of stuff. And you know what? It didn't work out well for him. It was not a good thing to well, do. Greg, you bring up a case where it occurred after the person was named in a suit. But, Mark, you see these people who say, we'll get you your house and other people's names. We'll get you these offshore bank accounts, and we will make you look like you have no money prior to being sued. Do they hold any water? I think it depends on the state that you're in. You know, I'm in Texas, and we have a pretty pretty stout homestead exemption and and some other protections. And then there's some other states like California where there's not the uh, significant protection. So I, I think it depends on the state that you're in. I would advocate getting with an estate planning specialist. I think that that's important. But I also think that a doctor should realize that those things can be punctured and penetrated many times and to not put all their eggs in that basket. More than that, if they think putting things in their wife's name is a good idea, remember 60% of physicians divorce. So you're, you take your chances against the plaintiff's bar and not your wife's attorney. You know, this is, I, I've seen this happen and you know what? It's not a good idea, folks. Just don't do it. All right. New case. And this is a case with huge ramifications. This is the West Virginia Supreme Court ruled this year on the Tugs matter. The Tugs matter had to do with this. They consolidated five different claims. And this is very common in Supreme Courts, just like they did with Brown versus Board of Education. That's actually five cases combined. Well, Tugs combined five cases, which had to do with people who brought action against physicians for addicting them with opioids. Now, not all of these cases were emergency cases. In fact, only one of them is an emergency case. But it has changed the ball field, at least in the state of West Virginia, uh, which has a terrible drug abuse problem. And now the physicians, they say, yep, you can go back after these guys for addicting you. I think this is a dangerous precedent, but it's one where we ought to, everybody ought to talk about it because the last thing you want is to be part of that chain of addicting somebody to prescription medications. I agree with you. I have a lot of thoughts because I've handled many board matters involving these types of issues and also lawsuits. Again, it's like a little bit of a broken record, but you know, the obligation on the doctor's part is to act reasonably. If the doctor reasonably suspects that what they're going to do is going to addict the patient or have the propensity to addict the patient, they need to warn them and they need to, to take some measures at, at making sure that they're reasonable in that regard. The authorities clamp down pretty hard on it because it's not just the addiction, but also it ends up being things like suicide or even homicide or driving while they're under the influence. There's a lot of ramifications, and they can get into a lot of trouble with some pretty creative lawsuits. So like the tobacco industry, <laughs> I think that we got to be real careful that doctors act reasonably 
in providing medications to patients that have addictive propensities. But I agree. I don't think it's a good decision. I think it puts too much burden on the doctors because most of these things are abused by patients and knowingly so. But as I mentioned earlier, the pendulum has moved left and the judiciary, they don't really want to hear us blame the patients. They want the doctors to be at the front end of the of the funnel. The, they're the most intelligent, they're objective, and they need to be careful how they prescribe. They kind of give a pass to some of these, these patients that uh, go out of their way to abuse it. By the way, we're not family practice, we're not internal medicine, we're not in oncology. We, we need to think about this from the emergency medicine standpoint, which is every time you write a DEA number, do you have to check the database? Pretty much all states now have it so you can put in their name, put in their social security number, and come up with the, the prescriptions which they've gotten. Is here in southeastern Michigan, you can probably check three different states around here, their databases for people. I, I don't want it to become the standard of care that every time we write a DEA number, we've got to check these databases because there are perfectly reasonable reasons to give pain medicine. And I, I think that I don't want us going down a path here where the burden on emergency medicine is that high. I agree with you. I think the safest thing is for us to link arms and say that's not the standard of care, but in advising doctors that are listening to this to tell them to kind of raise their game a little bit so that they avoid some of these, these attacks. One thing I would encourage doctors to do is advise patients of the risks. I'm giving you the following medications. They have addictive propensities. A note in the record that you advise them of the risks. Then I think you've kind of done what you can do. As far as checking databases and things like that, if you have suspicions, I'd do it. I'd note that you did it. I don't think it should be required every time. But again, we want to try to aim high. I can try to defend you if you don't, but it's a lot easier if you do. Right. On the other side of the equation, however, is that there's this big push to suggest that emergency departments are a source of a lot of illicit drugs. And I think that we are taking a bum rap here. You know, when somebody comes in with a broken ankle, they're going to need some substantial pain medicines for at least a week till they see the orthopedist and follow up. And, and But we, we're not the Oxycontin providers. We're not the pill mills that are particularly common in some of these very rural poor states where it's been documented that you can go into a doctor and within minutes you're coming out with a handful of uh, prescriptions for all kinds of opiate and other DEA requiring drugs. So I'm personally concerned about whether patients who have genuine pain are being denied care because they're making regulations suggesting or stating that emergency physicians are not allowed to prescribe more than three days worth opiates and, and things like that. That's a, clearly a move in the wrong direction. We need to be allowed to give the amount of medication we think that is appropriate. And I know for a fact that many, many emergency physicians are bombarded by people who are illicitly seeking drugs. But when you look at the country overall, those are the minority. And I think that creating laws that mandate how few pills we're allowed to prescribe is not the uh, solution to this problem. Within weeks with of, of the DEA testimony, which had to do with the n number of prescriptions and not the number of pills, the emergency departments became villains. 
The bottom line is when you and I write pills, we might write for a dozen. We might write for 10. This isn't like somebody's primary care doc, internist, family practice, that sort of who's writing for 120 Vicodin tablets. When they actually looked at the number of pills, we're way down the list. Now, it just so happens a whole lot of people with pain initially, perfectly legitimate pain, come to the emergency department. Why? Because we're open. But all I can say is the West Virginia decision tends to criminalize us, and it's not going to be a good thing. I don't like it. Okay. I would, New- yeah, let me just jump in real quick. Uh, we've got a matter in Texas, board matter, that we're handling right now for an emergency medicine doctor. Patient came in, just like you've described, sophisticated, naming the drugs he wanted by their names. And they had narcotics in him. The doctor chose to give him medicines that didn't have the narcotics. He was alarmed by the requests of the patient. And the patient ended up turning him into the medical board. So for trumped up grounds. So it's a minefield for doctors. And again, we have to use reasonable judgment, have good notes justifying why we've given it, and give them a 20-second, here's the risks of this medication, and note that you did so. God, it's just become awful. I'm glad I'm at this end of my career. I really am, because I I think we're spending more time on the nuances than we are making people better, and it's a pain. All right, next case, Gordon versus Lisa Flynn. This is a Michigan Court of Appeals case, and this has to do with a a restatement of the res ipsa loquitur doctrine, the thing speaks for itself, There was a a case at the trial level where a woman had gone in and Mrs. Gordon and had suffered as part of a surgery, a perineal nerve palsy. Now, whose fault is this? Is this the surgeon? Is this the staff? Is this the hospital? Well, the point is they were sort of fighting this out. And then they came up with the bright idea of saying, you know, we're going to state that the plaintiff really, because they can't tell us which instrument, which thing, whatever caused this perineal nerve palsy. They couldn't be specific. So we're going to say that since you can't be specific, you can't get any money. Well, the appeals court had had no had no humor there. If they said, Ray Zipsay, the patient went in, underwent surgery, didn't have a perineal nerve palsy when, when she went in, and had one when she left the operating room, It doesn't matter who did it or who was responsible. All of you are sitting there holding the bag for this one. Any comments, Mark? Yeah, this is a wild case and dangerous. You know, as a father and grandfather, I I want my family to be treated well. But when you sign a consent form for a surgery, you know that there are complications that can happen and that do happen even though proper care has been carried out. I in in law there's something called strict liability and it is a doctrine that applies say in you know the Pinto car cases where there's some kind yes. of def- defective design and boom they're liable regardless when the courts use res ipsa and and that's a latin term for the thing speaks for itself meaning this shouldn't happen but for negligence this shouldn't happen the thing it's, speaks it, for itself it's the leaving the clamp in the abdomen after the surgery Right. right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, <laughs> that's it. And I've defended those cases. And my defense is let's let's give these healthcare providers due process. I mean, we're de- depriving them of equal protection of the laws 
by not requiring the plaintiff's attorney to prove where the wrongdoing occurred. Sometimes things happen. I have tried cases where the foreign object was left and it got in there in an unusual way and the surgeon was very careful and the nurses were very careful. I think it, it is abominable for them to say, well, something bad happened, so off with all their heads. We're not right. going to require any kind of specific <laughs> evidence or proof. I think that's wrong. Let it play out. They have a burden of proving that something was done wrong, not that something happened, uh, not that the outcome was bad. That's strict liability. But they have to prove by negligence that something was done because of poor care, that the outcome was bad because of poor care. Right. So. I think, again, not to sound like a broken record here, but the judiciary has moved left. And so if it hurts somebody, they're going to figure out a way to hold somebody accountable. That puts a lot of pressure on healthcare providers, and it puts a lot of pressure on those of us that are their advocates. It's not good. It's wrong. You guys are in the trenches. You're trying your best. And when it's basically, hey, if it doesn't turn out well, you're responsible, that's not fair. Uh, what you do is complicated. The human body is complicated. Trying to detect and diagnose these conditions is a challenge. They don't always manifest themselves early enough. Things can happen. And if they move to it didn't go well, therefore you're responsible, wow, we're going to lose a lot of good doctors. Although, Rick, any comment? Yeah, yeah although I think there's a, a range of outcomes that could be predicted to be going along with the nature of the surgery kind of thing. Some of them may be infections, pulmonary emboli, all of those kinds of things. And it's kind of bad luck when these occur. And it's very hard to put your finger on the fact that this infection or something was really the doctor's fault or the hospital's fault. But I also believe that there are, you know, many of these perineal nerve jobs, I believe, resulted from people being put up in stirrups for protracted periods of time. And the vast majority of these people put up in stirrups have nothing go wrong with them. But there's this one in a hundred or one in a thousand where being put up in stirrups, it may have had something to do with causing this problem. So it's one of those things where, Mark, is the frequency with which an adverse outcome occurs, has it got anything to do with saying, well, it rarely, rarely happens. So if since it rarely happens and it did happen now, you must be the cause of it. <laughs> well, that's certainly an argument that plaintiff's attorneys make. We often go to the statistics and the literature, and it is a fertile ground for the plaintiff's attorneys to say, look, this, this rarely happens. It happened on your watch. Therefore, you're responsible. And it's a tricky argument, and we do our best to try to shoot it down. A lot of it boils down to the quality of the doctor, the nature of the complaint, quality of the plaintiff's attorney, and how uh, cunning he is in making that argument, and how bad is the, the patient hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a little kid and they're paralyzed, the jury doesn't require a ton of evidence in order to, you know, get to a conclusion to help that child. If it's somebody older and they've recovered, they may require a bucket full of evidence before they're going to be willing to blame somebody because there's been no long-term harm. So, you know, the formula has a lot of different factors, and those are just a few of them. All righty. Let's move on to another case. I, uh, this is News Flash, an update. Michigan just got its largest malpractice decision ever, Wade versus Henry Ford Hospital. I know everybody in this case, including the plaintiff's attorney, who uh, when he sees me socially, it's like I'm his greatest friend. 
and on the stand he'll he'll try and rip my throat out but he's not stupid this is a 55 million dollar decision wade versus henry ford hospital mother took her child in who seemed to be according to her gasping for air and as Mr. McKean said, following cursory physical examination, the child was discharged home with instructions for the use of an inhaler. Obviously, they thought there was some bronchospasm involved. The following morning, the child arrested while en route to the hospital for additional respiratory difficulties. And of course, the child is now stuck with what? Brain damage. You know, death is not the worst thing that can happen brain damage. Now, he effectively argued that despite normal vital signs, and everybody agreed that this kid had normal vital signs when discharged from the emergency department, the history of the child gasping for air, and and actually this had been the second visit to an emergency department over the previous week, merited admission to the hospital for observation. $55 million. Any comments? Well, I've seen cases like that happen, and it goes under the heading of juries being extremely willing to compensate when it involves certain categories of patients, and children is, is you know, definitely at the top of the list. I think that they are overwhelmed with sympathy. I think that when a plaintiff's attorney can put on a blackboard all the costs of future care, all the things that child's not going to be able to do, then the case becomes easier to judge in hindsight. I feel sad for the emergency medicine doctor. It's a sick game of, of musical chairs. You don't know when the music's going to stop. You don't know when the pool of children that you are treating, which one is going to end up with some weird condition like this. And so you, you've discharged a hundred of them and the hundred and first ends up having this type of problem and the music stops and you're held responsible. I think that what we're doing, what you guys do monthly and and what I'm trying to do to help doctors is taking the steps to have good judgment, to have that sixth sense, and to have impeccable notes. If there was an issue about the patient gasping, I'm hoping that that emergency medicine doctor had something in there about normal breathing and not gasping, something to counter those facts. If it's just the mom saying it later on and there's no record to support it, I think that maybe it's vulnerable on appeal. But I feel very sorry for the health care providers. It sounds like it was a runaway jury. Although, you well, know, Greg, virtually everybody who comes into the emergency department has an oxygen saturation measured. You got a sprained ankle, they're going to measure your oxygen saturation. It's kind of like considered an, uh, one of the vital sign adjuncts. And I'm sh- pretty sure your notes on this case doesn't have any anything referencing what the saturation was, but it would be really very helpful to know because if it's you know if this is this kid's down into the low 90s or something like that, then it, that that is kind of suspicious. About you better take a good look at what's going on, or uh, you know high 80s. And if it's you know 98, it's kind of like hard to make a case that this kid's got in any respiratory distress particularly. So I think that that would have been one of the key factors in this case. And in fact, if it was really, really low and not appreciated, then that certainly would be something that would help make the case for the patient. All right, let's move on. I've got, uh, well, 
Another news flash: I do have my first two cases, and I cannot use the name of the cases yet because they are still active, but they have to do with the nurse-doctor problem. Oh, come on. Yeah. Name some names. No, I'm not going to do that because <laughs> I'm in advisement in two cases, but it has to do with willful deception. This is where a nurse practitioner who had gotten a Ph.D. was referring to herself in one case, as Dr. So-and-so. Now, the plaintiff says not only is the care bad, but if the patient had known they were seeing an advanced practice person and not a doctor, a real doctor, they would have requested to see a real doctor. What do you think, guys? Are we building ourselves a trap if the patient is unaware or or doesn't understand who's seeing them in the emergency department, are we going to have to go back and cover our butts here? I think definitely. One of the first rules of medicine is is do no harm, right? First, do no harm. Yeah. And that extends into protecting oneself in the legal arena. You are really hamstringing your defense if you're going to pile on it with things like misrepresentation of your credentials or some gratuitous, you know, bad bedside manner move, some deception, it makes it harder to defend. Look at that case out of Virginia where the guy's cell phone was on in his pocket. Did you guys hear about right, that? Right, right. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it confirms what lay people think that doctors think about them, that there's some kind of condescending arrogance that, that this is an assembly line for the doctor. And so when they hear that anesthesiologist rant on and on about this patient and just, you know, making fun of him and, you know, she's going to put things in the chart that didn't really happen, did it hurt this guy? No. But the jury wanted to communicate to her, you don't act that way with people. And so whether we're buying a car or being treated in the emergency room or buying insurance or, or at a restaurant, we don't want misrepresentation. I don't want to be told that the salad I'm eating is 500 calories and it turns out it's 1,000 calories. And I don't want to be told that it's Dr. So-and-so caring for me. But oops, that doesn't mean medical doctor. That means she got a, a PhD in library science. I don't like that. Normal people don't like that. And so you're making it hard for us to defend you if you do stuff like that. Don't do that, number one. And number two, if you have done it, you better be very humble and apologetic when you give your deposition. Yeah, by, by the way, I think we can all conclude on this call that the common parlance is I'm the doctor means you're an MD or a DO. In the common parlance of talking to people, if they say, where'd you go? I went to the doctor. That's what they're talking about. And now I don't, there's going to be some question as to what was on the name tag and the coat which, by the way, this nurse practitioner has been asked to bring her coat and her identifying tags to the deposition. <laughs> and it's interesting. What did they have? And they're, they're going to be asking people, what did you call Miss So-and-so in front of the patients? What were, did she instruct you to call them? This is going to get ugly. Greg, and, is, uh, um, <laughs> Greg, was this person an employee of the hospital or with the emergency group? Emergency group. So the emergency group clearly should have had some policies about this. And given the fact that emergency groups are generally all mostly doctors, we're kind of sensitive about this idea 
And of all people, an emergency group would make it very clear that, yes, you are a PhD, but when you introduce yourself to patients, you'll identify yourself as a nurse practitioner. And that this should have never been allowed to happen. It is clearly duplicitous. And however, I'm glad, frankly, it's out there because there is this move that nurse practitioners will all have PhDs in the future. And as a matter of fact, a lot of nurse practitioners are going back and getting PhDs. And one of our nurse practitioners did that. And But it does not mean that you have increased your clinical acumen, that you've had additional medical training in any stretch of the imagination. It is not a PhD that, that increases your knowledge base of clinical medicine at all. So I think that I don't really see the point of it to be very candid, but if that's if that's what they want to do, please, please, please do not get yourself into this obvious situation where you are implying that you are a physician when in fact you know that you're not, and it's it, it's just bad. It's just bad. I think that our listeners should be aware of the fact that the term willful deception may come up in other cases. And you better be prepared to answer these kinds of questions should a, a deposition take place. And, you know, it's, I, I never discount the number of new and uh, novel ways attorneys can come up with ways to get you. Well, uh, and, and, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there's, there's a comparable situation, if I may just take a, a second. It's very, very common that if you're going to have surgery nowadays, you are going to have your, most of your anesthesia care provided by a CRNA, not an anesthesiologist. Correct. And I have handled several cases where plaintiffs have made this same type of argument. You didn't tell me it was going to be a CRNA. I didn't realize there wasn't going to be an anesthesiologist in there. And when things don't go well, and you know, with anesthesia, 99.9% of the time it's boredom and it goes fine, and then 0.1% of the time it is a catastrophe. Terror. And when it's a catastrophe, and you've got, for lack of a better phrase, the steward is flying the airplane versus the pilot, plaintiff's attorneys can use that as leverage. So it, it's just the best policy to be upfront. Most yep. people are going to go ahead and go forward with care. Yeah, But there's a high degree of offense when they find out later, and it didn't go well, and I've had little kids, things happen on the operating room table. And I'll tell you, when those parents find out that it was a you know 28-year-old CRNA that was at the helm when things went to heck, there's an exquisite level of suffering because they thought that the anesthesiologist was there, but no, he was in a room 15 feet away watching cartoons while seven operatories were run by CRNAs, and he's just going in at the beginning and at the end. I can defend it, but I don't like it, and I think it's deceptive, and I think they should be very open on the front end. I will be there at the beginning when we induce, and I will be at the end when we pull the tube out and wake her up. But for the two hours in the surgery, it's going to be this CRNA, and that gives people a chance to either accept or decline with things out on the table. And so it's the same way in the emergency room with I'm a PhD, but I'm going to call myself doctor. It's deceptive. People don't like it, and you're giving them unnecessary ammo. Because if they're not really that hurt, 
juries may get angry, just like the jury in Virginia when the, the people were tape recorded. The guy wasn't hurt at all, but they gave him $500,000 because they were so offended with uh, what these people were saying. Those of you who happened to not listen to last month's tape, it's hard to consider that that, that would have occurred. <laughs> But we that re- was unbelievable. We reviewed this case where this guy had a colonoscopy and he turned on his recorder with the idea that he would basically be able to understand better or refer back to any discharge-related instructions, but it was on during the entire procedure. And this obviously deranged anesthesiologist said some absolutely terrible things and uh, and it was even went beyond that and yes it was a five hundred thousand dollar verdict you don't have to get harmed i guess to lose certain cases like the Imtala cases in the original Imtala case which i think occurred in texas i'm not sure mark but it, it was a, a woman who was in labor who was sent from one hospital to the other and the baby came out fine and the, and the woman came out fine but the fact is that she was transferred in labor was such that it basically uh, offended the sensibilities of the federal government. It's like a speeding ticket. Nobody has to get hurt, but you, you're speeding, you're still going to get, you're still going to pay. But there is a, an extrapolation of this. I know a situation where a physician identified himself as a cardiologist. And the fact of the matter is, is that he was on the EKG reading panel at the, uh, at the hospital, where all the other people reading EKGs was a cardiologist, but somehow this person got onto the panel. And a lot of his practice, not all of it, was related to cardiology. He had no boards in cardiology whatsoever, no special training in cardiology. It was just what he liked to do. He was a general internist. And it's a kind of similar kind of thing because his EKG, you would think that EKG is being read by a cardiologist, but the fact is it really wasn't. And so I think that it, there's a slippery slope here where we need to stand by the fact that you have to have credentials that certify that you are what you claim to be. Yep. We're going to see more and more of this in emergency medicine with regard to ultrasound. Who can read what? Are you a radiologist? What's your training? These situations aren't going to go away. Let me give you two more updates of what's happening in the law and out there and get some responses. The first one is the Nevada bill, which is going forward, which will give physician assistants single shingle practice, will give them autonomy like a nurse practitioner. So your PA will be able to set up at a a CVS pharmacy, a Walmart, uh, open a practice in a small town. And there's essentially no supervision is essentially not a part of the bill of any real nature. This could be a game changer. And I think we need to be aware that there's going to be some liability situations come up here that are going to be new and different. I, I, I know that Mark is, is licking his lips and rubbing his hands <laughs> thinking, oh, my God, it's work piling up. And how am I ever going to be able to do all those cases? But I, I just throw that out. And I throw in another one, which is going to be a very interesting challenge. Rick and I spend a lot of time with advanced practice providers. And uh, some of them are good friends. Wouldn't you say that, Rick? Oh, absolutely. And, I, and I'm a big believer in them. I think that there's no question that 
They're needed. They are a great part of the emergency department team. I'm 100%. But there is the issue of supervision. Well, the supervision issue, in fact, just to let you know, in October in Boston, they've asked me to give the talk on advanced practitioner supervision. And the reason they gave me the talk was they know I'm old. You know, I'm not (laughs) running for anything. I'm going to die soon. But it is a hugely contested area. And sometimes we talk out of both sides of our mouths, and we have to be very careful with it. The caveat to the the Nevada bill is a letter sent in April, and I've got a copy of the letter, to the legislature in Missouri, because this had to do with them looking at all of these claims by medical societies saying, oh, it could be dangerous, could be that. They said, if you're limiting the practice of people based on safety questions, there better be some real studies about these or you're in, you're in restraint of trade. See, why the reason you doctors have said these things is because you want to keep the business, not because there's anything proven. And then they go through in the letter to say, you know, there's no evidence that the patients do worse, that there's more lawsuits, there's more this, there's more that. And it's interesting that they're attacking it now on a restraint of trade basis. Mark, any experience with this? No, not that specifically, and it, but it, it's worrisome. I think the legislature may have to get involved or there is going to be a lot of bad stuff happening and a lot of lawsuits over it. It, it would be akin to having the paralegal try the lawsuit or take the deposition of the plaintiff's expert. I mean, if, if Dr. Greg Henry is the opposing expert in a case that I have, I have to be the one to take that deposition. I've taken thousands of depositions. I'm going to be able to get concessions from him that my paralegal would not be able to get and maybe score some points. And if not, at least the most senior guy did it. You know, when you're providing care to people, just on a you know big picture perspective, you just want as good as you can get providing care to your family. And so when you have people who are not the equivalent of an emergency medicine doctor out there providing care, I think that it's going to be a field day for plaintiff's attorneys. Although, you know, there are situations in very rural areas where emergency departments are staffed exclusively by PAs. And I met a fellow, and he said works in upstate New York. And I was just floored that that was the case. But it's kind of like they, they do have an arrangement for some supervision. There's a physician available by phone if they get into a, a situation. But the fact of the matter is, is that it, if it's not those five PAs, it's nobody. It's nobody. There will be no doctor in the area. It's very rural. And on the other extreme, there's CVS. CVS has 800-minute clinic and plans to double that number in the next two years. And they basically are staffed by nurse practitioners. I don't know that they're staffed by PAs, to tell you the truth, but I, I don't I don't know that. But there's well, that's, the sh- that's the shift, Rick. A lot of states allow fairly autonomous practice by nurse practitioners, but Nevada is really leading the way on this by PAs. And stay tuned for my talk in October, Tuesday, October 27th in Boston, and we will talk about some of the ideas of supervision, which cases should be supervised, all that sort of thing. And I, I think it's, I think this is virgin territory. I think that the professions are shifting. 
It's no the what? What did Yogi Berra say? The future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> and I think I I think Yogi was right. You're, I think you're right. And why would CVS do that? Because they can make a lot of money. And I mentioned the Pinto case earlier, where the, the Ford or whoever decided it's worth it for us to sell these cars and not move the gas tank. Yeah, we'll lose some people, and yeah, we'll have some lawsuits. CVS is saying, we're going to have some lawsuits, but we'll just have insurance to cover that, and most of the time, it's going to be okay. Where I think that the doctors listening to this need to be careful is you're going to have people coming from those locations that weren't treated well, and you're going to get them, and it's going to be deeper into the, to the issue, and just be on guard. It'll be like a bounce back. They'll have stopped at the at the little CVS for some care, and three hours later, when it's really deteriorating, they're going to come and see you in the real emergency room, and you're going to inherit a mess. Yep. No, I, I think this is to be expected, and it, it, it's going to happen, and we're going to have to do the best we can with this. Before we get on to letters and that sort of thing, let me give you a couple of other cases, fairly recent decisions. And of course, they're from some of our famous favorite locations like Cook County, Illinois. <laughs> Does it get any worse than Cook County? I mean, I guess it's Dade County, Florida. It's Wayne County, Michigan. By the way, that $55 million decision I told you about, it's Wayne County or the uh, the entity is based in Wayne County. It's one of those things. All right. So we're going to look at a failure to diagnose preeclampsia. This, uh, the, and this is a major award. This is a $6.9 million award. The plaintiff's decedent had delivered a baby at, uh, and I will leave out the name of the hospital, on May the 21st, 2012. Twice the following week, she returned to the emergency room with complaints of shortness of breath. On each occasion, she was found to have swollen legs, elevated blood pressure. Nobody, by the way, did a dip urine for protein or anything. Pulmonary embolus was excluded. They did a study for that. And then, of course, she suffered a full-blown eclampsia on June the 1st. So we're talking about over a 10-day period of time. Decedent died nine days later. Now, when they put the emergency department together, uh, visits together, the question raised was, why didn't emergency physicians know about preeclampsia and eclampsia following delivery as well as before delivery? And they trooped in all kinds of OBGYN people and some good and some fairly big names in emergency medicine who said, you know what, this isn't right. What do you guys think? How are you going to defend this? Well, a tough case. Again, juries are affected by sympathy. And when you have a loss of a mother, I'm, you know, I'm assuming the baby survived. Yes. That compounds the sympathy. And so they're going to look for, uh, they're going to scrutinize the care and, and well, I think be more sensitive to things that didn't go well. I think there's some risk management monthly rules here that were broken. They just had something major done in the hospital, call their doctor, two of the three visits. There's no evidence that they contacted the OB-GYN doc. Secondly, Whenever you've had a third visit, unless there's something unusual, admit them. I don't care what it is. If the pizza delivery man has been there three times that night, admit it. <laughs> because there's something wrong. Rick, jump in. Yeah, there is this three strikes rule in emergency medicine, and you better be really, really, really sure you know what you're doing if you're going to send somebody out a third time. 
And I think if you go back to the textbooks, they will tell you that this, is, this can occur. Although we believe that the delivery of the child will be the resolution of this eclampsia business, and so that getting the child out. And so it's kind of like counter to what we believe, but if you, if you read the books, it's going to say, yes, this can occur. How often does it occur? I sure don't know, but I got to think it's pretty rare. But I think that if these doctors had kind of fallen back to some certain core principles, which like it, which is, you know, call the doctors who've seen them most recently, watch out for that, you know, these return visits. You've got to re- really, really be careful. And even if you did not know of the entity of eclampsia following a pregnancy, you, you knew that something was going wrong here and you just couldn't put your thumb on it in terms of a diagnosis. Had you done that, you would have been scared to death and you would have acted appropriately. But there are other conditions that women can develop after delivering a child. You know, they can develop this sympathetic-based myocarditis kind of thing. There, there's other causes of shortness of breath other than this preeclampsia, but all of them are nasty. And it's kind of a shame that, that this occurred for sure. I think you guys are spot on with those two suggestions of admitting the patient with this third return. I, I would say just stepping back big picture wise, advice to, to the listeners, it is easier for me to defend you when you admit the patient than it is when you discharge the patient. The categories of defense are so much more lush and bountiful when you've admitted the patient. I can point to subsequent care. I can point to, look, you know, you are the gatekeeper and you may not have figured out exactly what was going on, but you got her in the hospital and the baton of care was handed off. I mean, there's some creative things I can do. But when you send the patient home, take two aspirin and call your primary care doctor in the morning. It's tougher to defend, especially when the outcome is this bad. And then I like what Greg said about right at the beginning, you know, get that treating doctor involved. It is, it doesn't take that much time to get the unit clerk or the secretary or somebody, call her doctor, have a conversation and note in the record that you had a conversation. You've got to spread out some of this burden and get them involved. They know the patient well. If they're on good terms with the patient, they may well come up and see the patient. And so you you can spread it out a little bit, hand them the baton, and, and then they'll run with it. If they don't, you can at least show that you concern, you know, you were concerned enough to get that treating doctor involved, and it's easier to defend you. I, I agree. The idea of a woman delivering and a week later having problems without the OBGYN being contacted multiple times. It's kind of like, this is like emergency medicine 101. Yeah. I mean, you. this was chess. This was three levels chess. And it sounds like they were playing checkers. And we just, <laughs> we just can't defend that very easily when you're going through the motions. You got to have that sixth sense. And this is another one of those categories of patients, either expecting mothers or mothers that have just delivered. There can be bleeding issues. There can be infection issues. The antenna should go up a little bit, a little bit higher with this type of patient. And yes, it's easy for us to be Monday morning quarterbacks, which we are all the time. That's what the show is, right? Monday morning <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> however, but, uh, but however, we're trying to help them for game time situations. There are these core recurring principles that come up that I think we're trying to convey to our listeners, even if you don't know the diagnosis. 
Well, there's well, the, great, gotta, the we, great Santiana quote, those that have not learned from history are condemned to repeat it. And I think exactly. that your show is so informative because these guys are in the front lines every day. We need the men and women listening to this to be able to say, you know what, those guys were talking about something very similar to this. And so I'm going to take that extra step. It could save them. It, it, might, it might save a life, which would be wonderful. And it certainly might enable that doctor to be better defended, which is great too. Here's a case which isn't directly emergency medicine, but tell me if you can predict this one. A patient went in, 70-year-old man, for back surgery. The neurosurgeon left the orders, neuro checks every four hours, nurses to call if abnormal vital signs, yada, yada. Nurse calls the first-year resident in neurosurgery and said, the guy's complaining of more pain. The neurosurgery resident does not show up that evening. He orders a CT scan. Already a problem because it's the wrong test for the disease that we're going to find. The neurosurgeon goes around on rounds the next morning and the guy's paralyzed. They order a, uh, an immediate MRI and what he's got is a post-operative hematoma, which has compressed the spinal cord. Now, who's at fault? Is it the attending surgeon? Is it the resident in neurosurgery? Is it the nurses for not going over his head? and the resident's head and contacting the attending is at the hospital. This is a mess. My suggestion is don't try this case. Well, one of the first things I would say is, is the paralysis permanent? Because as I've talked throughout this, juries intend to bleed damages into liability. So if this guy is permanently paralyzed, then all of them are in trouble. Permanently paralyzed. Okay. So the attack against the nurse would be, use your head. You're talking to a first-year resident. You know he needs to come in, and because he doesn't, you need to either call him again or you need to go above his head or bring it to the attention of your charge nurse. I know that's how a plaintiff's attorney would think. The first-year resident seems to be in trouble. He didn't order the right test. He didn't come in. He should have come in, or he should have called his attending and said, look, there's something going on here. And then the attending, I don't know. It, it's the it's the Watergate questions. What did he know and when did he know it? Was he aware of this problem? And if he was then he's touched the tar baby that I talked about earlier. If he wasn't aware of it, he might be insulated and, and might be able to be more, more successfully defended than the others. All right. Well, Rick, it seems like our time is uh, willing away. I told you we would run out of time long before we ran out of cases because I've got a stack of cases here. Anything else we need to cover before we do Wine of the Month? No, actually, Mark, before we started, you mentioned that you had talked to the residents at University of Texas trying to keep them out of trouble. And I, I... you know, we certainly admire somebody who basically is going the extra mile to help out. And I, we appreciate your help on this recordings as well. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. I, I gave a presentation to the uh, fine residents of the University of Texas at Houston and then did a similar presentation at the University of Maryland through my you know, knowledge of Dr. Matu. And both presentations mm-hmm. went very well. We did case studies like what you guys do and fed them as much truth and correct principles as I could with the motivation to help them provide better medicine and to help them protect themselves when things go awry. So uh, we, we call the presentation based basic anatomy of a lawsuit. And we actually are producing a CD and a book that hopefully will help doctors out on the front lines. Oh, very cool. 
Yeah, well, Amal Matu is a very good friend of this program, and we have tremendous respect for him, and I'm glad he's including you in in all of those teaching programs. Well, actually, the reason that we uh, have asked Mark was because of uh, Amal. You know, did they treat you well back there? Did they give you a few uh, blue crabs or something like that, you know? You know? <laughs> well, I, we turned it into a little bit of a trip, so I didn't just eat crabs in Baltimore, but we had a Philly cheesesteak on our way to NYC and then gorged ourselves at NYC for four days and avoided the legionnaire's disease there oh that's very cool very cool (laughs) now that we've wandered into food and drink it's time for wine of the month all right ladies and gentlemen boys and girls again don't spend too much money there's uh, some new ratings out uh, particularly on some of the washington state wines there's one by k just this the letter k vintners and they're located in walla walla which means they like the town so much they named it twice, I guess. I mean, Rick, if, if you were an Australian animal in Walla Walla, would you be a koala Walla Walla? I, I mean, I'm not sure. But in any event, there's Syrah Morrison Lane, 2012, a great red wine. I couldn't believe how good this is. Got a 94 from the big guys. Now, you realize... That's at some of this stuff coming out of Napa that's selling for like 400 bucks a bottle. You know, this is, this is a tenth that, a twentieth that. Buy this stuff. Phone number 509-526-5230. They will tell you how to get it. And I get no money for this. Nobody sends me wine bottles. <laughs> but, you know, I tasted this and said, hey, we're onto something real here. And you wouldn't okay. turn it. And you wouldn't turn it down if they did send you wine bottles. Oh no, no, of course not. But <laughs> but and I and I'm willing to beg. I mean, I'm not above begging. But no, they didn't send me any wine, and they don't view me as an expert. But I like their stuff. I like the price. State of Washington, do it. It's good. Hey, Mark, I want to thank you very much for participating. Greg, I'll see you actually at one of our courses coming up for nurse practitioners and PAs in September. Yes, you will. My pleasure, guys. All right. This is uh, Greg and Rick and Mark signing off for Risk Management Monthly, the August 2015 edition. Bye. (laughs) 